Whoa! We're on now, I bet you. And everybody out here is awake right now, aren't they? Amen. Yeah, now we're, I mean, I know I'm awake. That cleaned my sinuses and everything else out. All right. I'm going to start uh, with just kind of a word of Bible study, and, and I'll tell you why. My, our philosophy, we're working on a whole revitalization process at the school, and we've got several states that are following kind of our pattern because we're the one been starting working in it. Dr. Epstein's desire and passion was to see a lot of these uh, South Carolina churches, North Carolina churches, Georgia churches in, in a revitalized pattern. And so my conviction is nothing changed anybody's heart and mind but the Word of God applied with the Spirit of God. So I am a Sunday school person. I, I started doing Sunday school when I was a uh, pastor in a, in a little church in Galax, Virginia. Well, it's not little. It was a county seat church, town of about 5,000. And, and, and we went from about 200 in Sunday school to about 300 in Sunday school, 340 average attendance. So I began to see the pattern of that. And then God allowed me to go to First Baptist Church in Norfolk in Virginia, church that had been declining for five years. They had gotten up to about 500 in Sunday school. By the time I got there, down to about 380 in Sunday school, God began to give us growth right away. I mean, it was just one of those God things. I can't take credit for it. There have been a group of senior adults been praying that God would raise up a great church in that area. And, and it just uh, seemed that God's timing was right for our church. And so my Sunday school director and I went down to Ridgecrest some years ago. And I don't know how many of you have taken your churches to Ridgecrest over the years for Sunday school week, but it was a Sunday school week. And there's a guy there named Andy Anderson. Some of you remember the old Andy Anderson growth spiral. Had a kind of a growth spiral thing. And, and so we read about that and heard about it that week. And Dick and I are headed back home and, and I said, Dick, what do you think we ought to do? And he said, well, maybe we ought to just do what he said. Let's go back and try those principles. It was basically about finding, it was Flake. I don't know how many of you remember the name Arthur Flake. Layman years ago created Flake's principle, find prospects, provide space, go get them. Just basic kind of stuff. So one of the things Andy said is that you need to go back home and set an enrollment goal. You know, look at it, and this is a good time of year to do that. So as you look for next year and Sunday school to say, okay, our enrollment right now is 100, 150. We'd love to uh, next year, uh, uh, let's say if you have 150 enrollment, you're probably running about 80 people. That's kind of 50% of your enrollments, what you're running in attendance. And so uh, we went back home. Our enrollment, we looked at, it was about 800 and some, and our attendance about 380, 400. And so I sat down with all my teachers. Now, we got them all there. We probably should have tried this this morning, but we got... We packed the place out because we had two churns of homemade peach ice cream. And I found Baptists will come for peach ice cream. You, you offer food, they come. You offer Bible study, they stay home. So if you got good coffee, good food, you can have pretty good Sunday school class. Amen? Amen? And so we sat there and just went around the room. Nothing scientific. And I said, now, you teach the ladies class, right? Yeah, yeah. How many of you got on the roll? And well, we got 18 on roll, about nine in attendance. And and I said, with God's help, how many you think you could have next year? And they just kind of, everybody just went around the room, set these goals. And we finished the evening, and I thought, this is exciting. We totaled it up. And, and it was about, uh, I think our enrollment goal for the next year was about, uh, about eight, 900 people, additional people. And that was a net gain. So I'm a church in Norfolk, Virginia Beach, which means the military is going to move a couple hundred people every year. So... I knew when I looked at that thing, that means we're going to have to enroll uh, 1,200 people next year. 
And so I, I'm, so I'm so green, you know, I'm just out of seminary. I don't know you can't do that. And so I get this great big old banner, and I have a sign painter paint it, and we put it out in the lobby, and we put our goal up. And, and about two weeks into this, one of my deacons came up and said, uh, Pastor, I know you're new here, but you know, we don't do banners in the vestibule at First Baptist Church. That's why I didn't know that. And so what I did was I lowered it the next week because if they're going to make me take it down, I want them to read it first. So they're having to duck to get in the sanctuary. So everybody's reading this goal. And like I say, it was about this time of year, maybe a little earlier, and, and, and people were... Uh, sending newsletters. Now, preachers get newsletters because we get good sermon ideas and illustrations and kind of trying to keep up with the neighbors, what they're doing, you know. And, and so everybody was announcing their enrollment goal. And the first one was four, and I circled it in red, and I wrote over it, oh, ye of little faith. And next one was about 7%. And, and then I finally got one, First Baptist Church in New Orleans, it was 11%. And so I kind of underlined that one, and I'm thinking, okay, 11% is not bad. And then I thought, I wonder what percentage ours was. And I did the math, and it was like 86% enrollment growth for a year. And I'm getting a little panicky at this point, so I called Dick Baker in. He was my Sunday school superintendent. And I said, Dick, I said, I'll show you something. I threw him that first time, you know, with the four on it, and he laughed. I threw him two or three more, and he finally saw the one with 11. He said, that's not bad. He said, uh, what's next? I said, yours is. What were you thinking when you did this? And I'm kind of passing the buck at this point. And he said, well, preacher, you said we ought to have a vision so big if God isn't in it's going to fail. And I said, man, I just preaching when I said that. You know, I don't know. Sometimes you preachers get caught just preaching. And he said, well, you know, it, it may look like a big goal on the surface, but, you know, the truth of the matter is it really is manageable because that's every class just setting their own goal. And so... What we did is on Wednesday night, we had a kind of a fellowship meal, and, and, and we put all of these goals up. So we put the class, their enrollment, what their enrollment goal was. So every week, we'd put plus or minus, and, and people got excited. They began to look at it. Well, at the end of that year, we didn't accomplish the goal of 86%. In fact, we enrolled a net enrollment gain of over 112%. Our Sunday school doubled in a single year. It was the largest growth in the history of that church. And, and a part of it came out of this, this renewed vision of what God wanted the church to do. Uh, I want to take you on a little Bible study this morning because, again, my philosophy is nothing changed in anybody's heart but the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. So I'm not going to give you a magical formula today. I'm going to help you learn how to teach the Bible more effectively, I hope. And then we're going to take you through in the second half. We're going to take a break midway, get some coffee and some dessert or whatever's down there. I don't know what's down there, but it looked good and smelled good when I came in the bottom door. And we'll take a little break, and I'll tell you about some of the materials. One of the good things is that when you come out to a conference like this that, that I'm in present, you get wholesale prices on Broadman Alexander products. I, they allow me to do that, so uh, your church may want to pick up some of these materials to look at, examine. On one of the tables, I've got some things that, that my wife and I use for Christmas gifts. I really love to give away the Word of God. And so I'm going to help you with your Christmas shopping very candidly. We, we do it every year, and I'll tell you how we do it and how God uses it. Uh, because I'm trying to find more new, effective, simple ways to share the gospel. You know why? Because what we used to do isn't working. It just isn't working. I, our baptisms are down, down in almost every church across the convention, almost every state. 
And we're going to have to find new ways to build relationships with lost people. We cannot compromise the gospel. The message is consistent, but the method by which we communicate, we're going to have to look at, aren't we? Because what we're doing is not working, so we're going to have to change some of that. So we're going to look at those kind of things. If you have your Bible, open it to Colossians. And, and there may be some pew Bibles, I don't know. And if you don't have it and there's not one in the pew, I'll assume you've memorized it, so that'd be fine too. Paul is in prison when he writes Colossians. In fact, he writes Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon at the same time. Epaphras, which probably was a Pauline convert, or who probably was a Pauline convert, uh, was the pastor at the church in Colossae. And there was a heresy that was spreading down the Lycus Valley, that's kind of proconsul Asia, modern-day Turkey, where the seven churches of the book of Revelation are. If you kind of watch it in your Bible, you go from Ephesus to Colossae, you'll actually circumscribe all seven of those churches. In fact, I believe that they were a local association of churches. I tell people that the only, the only organization that I can truly find in the Bible outside of a local church is an association of churches. Uh, Paul's letters were probably distributed by these associations of churches. These seven churches, J.B. Lightfoot, an ancient British scholar who's now in heaven, uh, are always listed together. Everywhere they're ever listed, you'll find them just kind of listed together, these churches. And he, uh, he argues that they were uh, related for common goals of the gospel. Isn't that what an association is? And so I think both of these letters, Colossians and Ephesians, were written for all seven of these churches. Uh, Tychicus is going to bring these letters back to Ephesus because if he's coming from Rome, he's going to come by ship. And that's where he's going to land. He's going to land in Ephesus. So he leaves the letter we call Ephesians in Ephesus with instructions to make a copy of it and share it with the other churches. See, they didn't have a printing press back then. So if Paul sent a letter, it's precious. So that church is going to have a hand copy of it, and they're going to send it on to the next church. They'll copy it, maybe make several copies, and send it to the next church. And as soon as that letter came, they're going to get it out, and they're going to read it in, in its entirety because it's precious to them. It, they're, they're already beginning to believe that it has the same authority as Jesus' writings, that this is obviously Scripture, that God's doing something through the Holy Spirit to, to instruct these early churches. So the reason that Paul sends all three of these letters by one bearer is that he's got a little dilemma. There's a runaway slave that's become a Christian, Onesimus. His owner is Philemon, and uh, he's in the church at Colossae. So he's got to get these two letters delivered and a slave delivered along with the letter to his owner. And a, and a runaway slave during that time was almost like it was in the history of our country. He's a wanted man. So he can't carry this slave from church to church. So Tychicus delivers the Ephesian letter, and he goes across country and takes the slave home and delivers the Colossian letter, and these two letters are going to crisscross. So the, every time, if you ever noticed, if you've ever taught Ephesians, what do you do? You'll refer to Colossians, won't you? If you ever teach Colossians, you refer to Ephesians because these letters are written in that way. So the, the heresy that Paul was dealing with by the second century is called Gnosticism. Comes a Greek word gnosis, to know. And, and it's kind of a, an interesting philosophy. There's a, an interesting word in it. And the word is pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A. It's a Greek word that, that translates fullness. You only find it in two letters, Ephesians and Colossians. 
And, and the heresy was that somewhere in the past, the playroom exploded. Now, those of you who have seen the Star Wars movie, just take the word playroom and talk about the Force. I'm serious. This kind of nebulous power, good and bad, because it's got a yin and a yang, a good side, a bad side. And this Force exploded, and, and all of us got these sparks of divinity. So man needs enlightenment to understand his own divine nature. Does that sound a little like Oprah Winfrey's guest? Well, you're correct, because Satan is not a creator. He's a liar. He has the same, same heresy every generation, different label. And so Paul takes this word pleroma and does something really unique with it. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, first of all. And he's going to give this great, what's, it's great, Almost a, a hymn to Christ, this Christological statement of who Jesus is. 15, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now that does not mean, as some people suggest, including Mormons, that Jesus is a created being. Look at the next verse. For by Him all things were created. So He was not created. He is before all things. He is the author of creation, God creating through His Son and by His Spirit, whether things in heavens or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. By the way, those are terms that were used in, in this Gnostic uh, idea of the heavens. And so Paul said, I don't care what they are, what you call them, everything has been created through Him and for Him. He is before everything. So he, he is not a created being. He's before creation. And in him, everything coheres, holds together. He is, now, th th at this point, you would think we're, we're at the height of what anybody could say about Jesus, right? Now, here's the culmination. He is the head of the body, the church. So Paul ends not with creation. Sometimes we go out this time of year on the Blue Ridge Parkway, and we see those incredible leaves and we go, wow, how could anybody see this and not believe in God? I don't know about you, but that's kind of my reaction. I flew into Alaska some years ago, and we were landing, and man, it, the, the, the landscape was just so gorgeous. My wife is on the window side, and she punches me, and she said, how could anybody think this just happened, that there wasn't a creator, the, the majesty of this? Well, Paul is saying that the, the zenith of God's creation was in the church, that, that it's more majestic, its intentions to be more majestic than those Blue Ridge Mountains right now. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have first place in everything. Here it is, underline it. It was the Father's good pleasure for the pleroma. Do you see the word fullness? For the pleroma to dwell in him. So he kind of takes their word and says, if you're really interested in, in this pleroma, you've got to know Jesus. Jesus is the pleroma. It's not some sort of nebulous force anywhere. It's in Christ. Well, we believe that, so let's turn back to Ephesians, the companion letter. One of the reasons I love Ephesians, in fact, in this curriculum we're presenting right now, the next book coming out is Ephesians, and I wrote that one. And, and the reason we like it is that the language is very effusive. Uh, exceedingly abundantly beyond, you know, Ephesians 3, that, that great benediction. We... We love the language in it. Uh, but the, the other reason we love it is that Paul allows us to kind of put our ear 
to his prayer closet. You know, in every letter he begins by saying what? I've not ceased to pray for you. He says to the churches every time, I, ever since I've heard of your faith, I, I've not ceased to pray for you. And I've asked students, how would you like to know what Paul prayed for his churches? Well, here it is. He said, I pray, first of all, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He took their word enlightenment. He said, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart. Now, it's an interesting thing because we're going to use this in our teaching in a minute. There's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, isn't there? Head knowledge informs, heart knowledge transforms. So a good teacher is not teaching for head knowledge alone. In other words, it's not enough that your students can come out and say, I know the books of the Bible, or I've, I've memorized that verse, or I know my dispensational chart, or whatever it is that we want them to know in a sense. The question is, did it change their life? A lot of our students know more about the Bible than they obey about the Bible. And so he said, I want the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. He's harking back to Old Testament image that Israel was God's calling, his called out people. By the way, the word calling, important word in the New Testament because when Jesus mentioned in Matthew 16, upon this rock I will build my church, the Greek word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. Uh, ek, um, I didn't see an exit sign in here. Uh, if you had an exit sign on that door, you got half your Greek word. Out. Ek. Kaleo means to call. Called out. That word in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew, but have you ever wondered why the New Testament's in Greek? Same Jewish community, isn't it? Jesus, the disciples are all Jewish. Hellenism, culture changed in, in the intertestamental period. During the time after the Babylonian captivity, the Persian government, and then you had the Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and it, it influenced everybody. Hellenism, Greek culture. Uh, in fact, in Acts chapter 6, one of the problems that led to the deacon ministry was Hellenistic widows. Those, those were widows that were Jewish. They'd been influenced by Hellenistic culture, and they, they were different. And, and, and they felt like they were being neglected because they kind of had more of a, a different worldview in, in a way. So the Old Testament was actually, during the intertestamental period, translated into Greek. Translation we call the Septuagint translation. And so the word for the congregation of Israel in that Greek Old Testament is ecclesia, a called out community. In other words, it, 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 it was what Israel was. Israel was God's unique people to join him on mission. So when Jesus declares his intention to build an ecclesia, you, you know why those apostles' ears picked up. That's kind of, you know, that whole Matthew 16. That is that, that Jesus starting something that, that has historic roots in the Old Testament, but it's, it's new. So this ecclesia is not going to be Jewish. It's going to be Jew and Gentile. This ecclesia is not going to be predominantly male. It's going to be male and female. This ecclesia is not just going to be freedmen, it's going to be free and slave. This is a different community, his called out community. That, that's who we are. That's what Paul is using here. So I want you to know the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the, his glory, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Most commentaries miss this verse. Paul is not saying, I want you to understand the riches of your inheritance. 
He's saying, I want you to understand that you are God's inheritance. Now, we kind of get this when we have grandkids. I've got nine. And, and I'm trying to, to distill in them core values, things that are important to us as a family, because they're my heritage. Uh, you know, you're going to pass on those beliefs and family traditions and family history through them generation to generation. Did you know that God considers you His heritage? That means that God has fully designed His church to implement His kingdom activity here on planet Earth. There is no other access. Now it gets better. And He said, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. He said, I want you to understand the kind of power available to you to grow your Sunday school. And he said, this is what he did when he raised Jesus from the dead, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that's named, not only this age, but even the one to come. He put everything under subjection under his feet. Why? He gave him his head over everything to the church. God gave Jesus to the church, which is his body, are you reading? Are you looking at your text? The playroma of him who fills all in all. Now, if, if you hadn't heard me read these two texts together, you might have said, I can't believe Paul used the same word to describe the church that he used to describe Jesus. He said in Colossians that if you want to see the playroma of God, you look at who? Jesus. Where do we look today to see the playroma of God? The church. Now you say, well, that's just one little verse. Well, I'm glad you said that. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. To me, the very least of all the saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Here, here are some of these words. Unfathomable riches of Christ. I love that. Isn't that a great phrase? And to bring to light was the ministration of mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created everything. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery. My wife has me record BBC on Sunday night. They got the old Sherlock Holmes on there. She loves Ms. Marple. How many, you know who Ms. Marple is? She's a grandma sleuth. I mean, she's good at this. And, and I love a good mystery that you just kind of sit there the whole thing. And, and I'm always wrong. My wife is good at these things. I always think the butler did it with a candlestick in the pantry or something, you know. I can never get it right. She's always got it right. So this was a mystery hidden before creation by the Creator. That's a, big, that's a big time mystery, amen? All right, verse 10, underline it. That is the, that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Did you just hear what he said? God's intention before creation was to demonstrate His manifold, multifaceted wisdom through the church. That boggles my mind. The word uh, manifold or multifaceted there is an interesting word. When the Old Testament was written in Greek, this word is the same word that describes Joseph's tunic. You remember that multicolored tunic that made his brothers jealous because they knew how much their dad loved him? They, they knew that their dad had lavished his love on Joseph, made him so jealous that they killed, wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. So what Paul is essentially saying is that God 
desires to shower His blessing on His church in such a fashion that it makes the world jealous. That God wants to do something in your church, in your Sunday school that is so beautiful that the world goes, man, I got, I got to get some of that. By the way, this is what He carried out. Verse 11, the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus come to earth? Most of us tend to think of this individualistically. Came to save me from my sin. Israel always thought corporately. Community. And so Paul is saying Jesus came not just to save you, but to save you for community because His eternal purpose was to display His multifaceted power in that community, in the church. Well, this is not the end of the story. He starts praying again in verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. But let me go, uh, with time constraints, let me go on down to say, here's what he says, verse 18. He said, I want you to comprehend with all the saints breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowing. That's an interesting verse. He describes Christ's love in four dimensions. We just kind of got excited about having 3D TV. And sometimes you go to a 3D movie. You put those glasses on. And, you know, these young people think we just invented this. How many of you remember those 3D movies you used to go to? Had those little cardboard glasses, one green lens, one red. We had 3D back then. Paul describes it in 4D. But then he says, I want you to know that which is not knowable. How can Paul pray that we would know something we can't know? You ever thought of that? Because the answer is in the text. Four words. With all the saints. You know what he just said? You'll never know everything God wants you to know about his love outside the church. Can't do it. You know why? Our experience is too limited. None of us have experienced everything that there is to experience in life, whether it's death or losing a job or divorce. But you know what happens when you get together on Sunday morning in your Sunday school classes, you got a chance at it, don't you? Because we all bring a piece of that picture there. He said, I want that to happen so that you will know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowing. Why? That you can be filled up to the what? You can talk out loud. Be quiet tomorrow. Fullness. He said, I'm wanting you to, to, to assemble together with a saint so that you can know this fullness. That's when he says, Now to him is able to do far abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Interesting words there. The word ask is the word petition or prayer. So I ask people, what's your, what's your boldest prayer for your church? Next word is dream, think. What's your biggest dream for your church? Now, if I ask you, do you think your church could double in a year? Most of you go, hmm. Because I've seen what it's done the last several years. According to the power that works within us. He's talking back to that resurrection power. That if, if that resource, and see our problem is we start thinking about our location, our staff, our budget, our limitations. And our problem is we don't think about our resources. To him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I've only got two more minutes of the Bible study, and we'll get into how to teach this better. 
how does that happen? Does Paul give us a clue? How, how does my little church out here in the middle country get to this point where it is pleroma? He actually answers it. 4.11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some pastors, teachers, to equip saints. So this is why it's important we got pastors, teachers here today. Now, it's a question. That may be one role, pastor, teacher, or it may be. Not be. He, it, there's kind of a hyphen in it if you kind of look at it in the Greek. There's, there's no um, and there, but it, it may be. We don't know. We, we'd have to just surmise. So it, it, I always looked at my Sunday school teachers as an extension of my pastoral ministry. They were kind of my teaching team because I want to tell you something. If you don't enhance what's happening from the pulpit, it's, it's not going to happen because the pulpit's kind of a lecture, whereas in your class there's a chance for people to stop you and say, wait a minute, I don't get that. That doesn't happen too much in the sanctuary. So there's that pace of dialogue. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, diakonos there, by the way, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith, would you like for your church to get there? To the knowledge of the Son of God, would you like for your church to get there? <coughs> to maturity which is measured by the stature which belongs to the what? Fullness. There it is. So he says, yeah, this, this is not just a theory. If we get pastors, teachers, equipping saints to do work of service, it is possible, potentially able, for your church to get to the place that expresses the pleroma as Jesus did in his incarnation. Now do you say, why I'm willing to fly to Arizona one week, Montana another week, and come down here in a small association on a Saturday morning when I could be at home raking my leaves. I mean, you know, and why you're here when you could have been a lot of other places is because what we do on Sunday morning has greater eternal consequences than anything's going to happen in Washington, D.C. on Monday. See, we kind of get out of kilter if we don't think about it because... You know, we think, well, they could pass another law and it's going to, you know, it's going to make my insurance go away, which is already happening right now for some of you. And, and we get all frustrated over that. But guess what? What you do tomorrow morning could have an eternal impact. It will have an eternal impact. So let's talk about improving our teaching skills. If you want to go ahead and get that one out. And I think I'm going to give you kind of a, about 10 points here. And uh, we'll get you still uh, back on time. Uh, my goal is to kind of get you through this session about 10, 15, take a break for 15, 20 minutes because you'll have to go downstairs, come back up. And we'll try to get out of at least uh, 11, 30, quarter till. So you get on the way in time that you won't starve to death. Most Baptists are kind of moved by lunch hours. And uh, uh, any of you who want the PowerPoint or even the audio of this to, for your church, you're welcome to do it. This is a part of your association's ministry here. Uh, number one, uh, I want to challenge you to embrace a larger definition of teaching. Your role is not simply to teach a 40-minute Bible study once a week. Y your real goal is to lead the class in understanding its place in the Great Commission strategy of the church. The Sunday school cannot be isolated from the vision and purpose of the church. Now, I see that too often. What, what happened in Norfolk is that we really redefined Sunday school to say that the Sunday school is the church organized 
to accomplish the Great Commission. So there's, a, there's one of the books over here, and I kind of go back and forth kind of to, because I know if I try to show you all these books at one time, my wife says I'm the only man she knows doesn't have an unpublished thought. So uh, this is the little book called Revitalizing Sunday Morning Dinosaur. It kind of tells you the story of what we did in First Norfolk, how we did it, and what the principles are behind it. But the goal is to build a Great Commission Sunday School. So in every one of our Sunday school classes, we had a teacher, an outreach leader, and an inreach leader. And you say, why? Because if you go to the Great Commission, what is the one imperative in the Great Commission? If you get it right, one of my D-men students got it wrong last week, so you'll be above the D-men student. What's the imperative? You think it's a trick question, don't you? It isn't. It's to make a disciple. The imperative in the sentence is make disciples. There are three participles that define how. Going, baptizing, and teaching. So you cannot make a disciple without these three participles defining it. In other words, going, we would use the word evangelizing, right? You can't disciple somebody who's lost, can you? So if the church doesn't go, it'll never be a discipling church. I hear some churches say, well, we're just not into evangelism. We're in discipleship. And I said, well, you're not in discipleship because you missed step one of discipleship. You cannot disciple somebody who's lost. So you've got to go. So every one of our Sunday school classes had somebody in that class organized and organized in that class to, to say, how, who is it that we know that we can reach? How do we go about doing that? Now, uh, when I was at First Baptist Church in Norfolk, we were in an era of kind of faith, EE kind of evangelism. Any of you know those titles? EE stands for Evangelism Explosion. Faith is one Southern Baptist basically baptized EE. EE came from Coral Ridge Presbyterian, so we thought, well, we can't do that. So we kind of took it, baptized it. Same, same principle. It was kind of a 16-week class, get people in, mentor them, go knock on doors in your community. That's very difficult today. I'm, I'm just being candid with you. I, I travel all over the states, and it is very difficult to do that. Now, I am still going to suggest that every church needs, in some way, and we'll talk about this when we get to the Velcro session in a minute, there needs to be a way of following up on every visitor that comes to your church, and that's the visitation program. So most of our visitation was organized based on, on somebody came in, filled out a, a card, and, and they left, and we sent somebody to go by and talk with them about Christ and about our church, etc. Now, that, that still needs to be in effect. In fact, I tell a church, if you don't plan to visit somebody, don't ask them to fill out a card. Because if they fill out a card and you don't go, you're hurting the, the whole role of evangelism. But we're not going to win this community to Christ by knocking on a few doors on Monday night. But if we can get the people out of the pews into the community building relationships for the sake of the gospel. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was uh, in my daughter's house in Memphis. And uh, my oldest daughter, well, it's been nine years now because my oldest daughter has uh, our oldest grandbaby. It works good that way. And my, my daughter was in Cyprus at the time. She's one of your international missionaries. She's now in Central Asia in a Muslim city. And her oldest uh, granddaughter's nine, but she was about seven months when she flew in for the first time. So the whole family was pretty excited to see this little girl. And the and, uh, international flight came in through Memphis back when they had Northwest Airline hub there. So we all went up there, and, and she came off the plane kind of groggy, as you might imagine, after that 12-hour flight. 
So <laughs> next morning when she got up, uh, my daughter said we got to give her a bath. She was on that plane all night. She, she needs, you know. Well, Katie, who's my youngest daughter who lived there, didn't have the little tubs and stuff. And so we put my granddaughter in a, in a big double sink. And I, I don't know if some of you grand, it, yeah, it works. So the warm water and she was waking up and, and she's kind of leading some eternal symphony somewhere. She's got arms and legs going everywhere and we're trying to keep her in that sink. She's having a great time. And when I step away, I'm wetter than she is. And the Holy Spirit said, that's what evangelism ought to look like today. You get around people who just get in love with me, you get splashed with living water. So I walked away from that, and I started telling that story in churches, and I'd have laymen come up and say, how do you do that? And I'd say, well, you get a sleepy baby and put her in the, no, no, the, how do you do the other part? So my wife and I wrote a little book together called Show People Love and Share Him, Splash. And it's a whole different approach to evangelism. In fact, this is a six-week Bible study. You can do it in discipleship training. You can do it in your Sunday school classes. And uh, every chapter is, is based around the life of Jesus. And I tell people, do not advertise this as another evangelism program. You know why? Because people will stay away in droves, right? So you, if you do this study, you say, we're going we're gonna to look at how Jesus did ministry and see how it changes us how it changed our home. So a lot of this is based on bringing lost people into your home. A lot of this is based on building a relationship with people at work that you and splashing them with living water. That, that may just be a simple scripture verse someday when a guy says, man, I've had a tough week. You know what happens is we ignore that as a God moment. And instead of saying, brother, tell me about it. How can I pray for you? Or giving him a verse like Philippians, you know, where it talks about the fact that that be anxious for nothing, but at everything with prayer and supplication. We're, we're living in great days for evangelism. I mean, I, I, I love to listen. I've I got XM radio in my car because I spend so much time in it. And I listen to the news channels like Fox and Bloomberg and all those. People are worried today. They're worried about, am I going to have insurance? Is this Medicare thing going to work? I mean, everything. Will that money last? Is there going to be any Social Security when I get to that place? There's a lot of stuff creating anxiety. You know what? That's a great opportunity for the gospel. It's a great opportunity if we can learn how to splash people, to show them love, and then share Him. So every one of our Sunday school classes were organized based on the Great Commission. So every class had a teacher. That teacher's role was not just to teach 40 minutes. That teacher's role was to organize that class based on the Great Commission. So they encouraged an outreach leader. Now, what did the outreach leader do? Well, if there was someone of that age group, let's say you're in a Sunday school class 30 to 40. If there was somebody of that age group visited the church, that Sunday school class made that visit. You know why? There's a principle called homogeneity. The, the gospel flows through like relationships. So we didn't send the senior adult to visit a young married couple. You know why? A young married couple wants to know, well, what's preschool like? And they go, well, you know, when our kids were in there, it was great. Shag carpet, Noah on the wall, you know, the ark. They don't know. They haven't been into preschool unless their grandkids come for a visit. They're looking. A young couple moves into your community. They're looking to make friends with young couples. They're looking to build that homogeneous relationship. So uh, that was one of the roles. Now, we ask every one of our Sunday school classes to have an event once a quarter to which they could bring 
unsaved people or minister to unsaved people. Now, they could have a fellowship every week if they wanted to, and some of our singles groups did, but we ask, and you could have potluck dinner and just kind of hang out at the church. We can care once a quarter. We want you as a Sunday school class to do something that either engages an unsaved person to ministry. So you might go uh, mow somebody's grass or clean up their yard this time of year. You, you're welcome to come to my house right now. i got plenty of leaves, and if you feel a ministry need, uh, no, I'm, I'm saved, so you need to find somebody unsaved. That we begin to splash them. We begin to show them love just out of uh, the fact that we care about them. We also encourage them to they can have a fellowship. Uh, one night, my wife had a young uh, class, and a young couple's class, there was a lady in that class whose husband would not come to church. He, he, she was actually a pastor's daughter, but he was a, a happy pagan. I'm serious. I mean, he was just kind of happy. He liked his life the way it was. Didn't mind his wife going to church. He just wasn't going. Came every Sunday by herself with her little girl. So, Paula's Sunday school class planned an outreach event that was a swimming party at one of the family's homes that had a swimming pool in their backyard, and this little girl was about the same age as my daughter, Katie, my youngest daughter. And so a lot of the games were related to father-daughter, father-son kinds of you know, races and things of that nature. Well, this little girl wanted to come. So she went home and asked her dad to come. And he said, no, you and your mom go. I'm not going. She said, Daddy, if you don't go, I ain't going to go. And she told him why. Well, guess what? What, her, what his wife never could accomplish, that little girl did. It was not at the church. It was in somebody's backyard. So it was a, a, a more comfortable setting. Well, you say, what did you all do in events like that? Did you kind of grill hamburger meat and put a tract in it so they bite down on it and they get the gospel? No. Hang out and have fun. You know why a lot of non-Christians don't come to stuff we do? Because they think it's boring. They, they think if they get saved, they're going to lose every bit of fun they've ever had. And so the, the goal that night is just to have a good time. So I'm standing by the pool, and we're just kind of talking, his wife, my wife, and, and all of a sudden, he finds out that I drive a little 59 MGA. I don't anymore, uh, but I'm not a mechanic. I, I could put gas in it, and I could crank it. That, that's the extent of it. Well, he rebuilt classic Corvette. So for all of a sudden, homogeneity created receptivity. The homogeneous principle at work here was what? Cars. Cars. And so all of a sudden, because of that homogeneous principle, he started talking. He said, oh, tell me about your 59 MGA. And I said, well, you crank it with the key. No, I didn't. I kind of bluffed my way through a little. He said, well, let me tell you about my Corvettes. He said, in fact, he said, how would you like to see my Corvette? I said, well, I love Corvettes. And he said, uh, how about next Friday night? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. He said, my wife's a good cook, he said. And he said, why don't you come down and have dinner with us to see the Corvettes? Well, his wife nearly falls in the pond, not because he had just invited me to dinner and she's got to cook, but because she understood that the chickens had just invited the fox for dinner. She knows what I'm going to do when I get in that place. Well, we drove down to the beach, had their address. It's the first time I've ever seen a a house connected to a garage. The house was about 1,500 square feet. The garage about 4,000 square feet. Five bays. I mean, you could have eaten in there. I'm telling you, this guy was big, and, and he had tools that cost thousands of dollars, that, you know, to get the rust off of them, all that. So for about an hour, I learned more about Corvettes than I ever wanted to know. 
Finally, mercifully, the, the wife goes, hey, come on to dinner, guys. So we go in there. And, of course, he does what you would expect. He said uh, it's kind of embarrassing to him at first, but he said, Pastor, will you pray? Well, of course I will. And so I prayed, and I prayed for him and for his wife, for their home, for their family, for their daughter. Well, we ate, had a great time. At the end of it, let me tell you what I did. I said to him, I said, you know, you took about an hour to share your passion with me. Can I tell you about the passion of my life? He said, well, I guess that's fair. And so about five minutes, I took him through the gospel presentation. Do you know he prayed to receive Christ that night? You know why? Because he had never heard the gospel. He had rejected religion. Most of the people out here aren't rejecting Jesus. I mean, how do you reject this good deal? You, you can get a mulligan in life. You can start all over as if you have never sinned. It, this is really incredibly good news. I mean, we, we forget that it is good news. Gospel is good news. That's what it means. We're not going out there saying, I got some really bad news for you. Now, unfortunately, we kind of are seen that way because we kind of, uh, our, our bad news, you're going to hell. Well, I got some good news. You can avoid hell. There's a different way of telling this thing. Uh, we use a little um, plan of salvation in here called life. I could teach all of you to do it this morning in five minutes, but I'd don't want to take the extra five minutes. It stands for love, isolation, forgiveness, eternal life. It's as easy as ABC, acknowledge your sin, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. There you go. It's real simple. And so helping people just understand basically. So that's what that outreach leader does. Inreach leader, we're going to cover under Velcro Church. We had every member in our church was enrolled in Sunday school, non-negotiable. If you were a member on the church roll, you were enrolled in a small group Sunday school class. You say, why did you do that? Because the Bible does it. Go look in the book of Acts. They, they met for worship. They met from house to house. Now, when a church gets larger, if you don't have that, you're going to lose people because you don't know what happens to them. I mean, you know, when, you, when they get out there, you, you may see them in the sanctuary, but you don't miss them. But guess what? If they're in your small group and they're not there for a couple weeks, you know that, don't you? Now, we're going to talk about that. So what I'm saying is that I don't want you to think this morning, I'm just going to learn how to teach the Bible better because the teaching role in our church was a great commission role. Secondly, the teacher must be teachable. I want people teaching for me who have a hunger for God's Word. And they're continually learning in all areas of their life. That means that they're going to be reading the Bible, reading other books, Regularly involved in Bible study, worship, and learning opportunities. Now, see, I, I didn't kind of go at this legalistically and said, now, if you don't come to worship, you can't teach Sunday school. I just didn't want somebody who wasn't hungry enough for God's Word to teach Sunday school. So if they're not in worship to hear the preaching of the Word, they're, they're exhibiting the fact they don't really have that passion. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I, you know, the Bible says we're to love God with all our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. I've, I, tragically, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you very candidly, I think we've gotten almost illiterate in Southern Baptist life. We, we've, we've dumbed it down to the point that, that not only are our people not reading, but our teachers aren't reading. And so, you know, one of the things that we're doing in our curriculum, and I'll show you that curriculum in a minute, is that we're, we're actually kind of raising the bar. We, we call it non-disposable curriculum because the idea is not that you just buy this quarterly and don't read it, which is what most of you throw about half of them out. 
but that you actually keep this and you build a Christian library. When, when I go into homes, I try to, one of the things I do is I'll look for what are they reading. And I do this in evangelism. Because if I go into somebody's home and they're reading sports magazines, I'm going to talk sports for a while. Why? Build home of Janine. If they got hunting magazines, I can talk hunting. Now, I'm not a hunter, but my brother is, so I got all of his stories. And, and I'm going to listen to them. But it, to me, one of the great tragedies, because I'm in churches all across America, large and small, and I'm invited into a lot of leaders in the church, deacons, teachers, homes, and they don't have a Christian library. And I'm thinking, the most important thing in our life, why would we not want to have a library that would help us to grow in our understanding of the Word of God. So the fact that you're here this morning indicates you're probably a teachable teacher. But the fact that we didn't have 200 here indicates that there are a lot who say, well, I don't need that. I've, you know, when you quit learning, you quit growing. When you quit growing, your class quits growing or your church quits growing. I, I'd say the same thing with my pastors. I was president of Southwestern Seminary for nine years, so... I end up going into a lot of my graduates' churches, and I go there to preach. They want me to come preach. And so a lot of times they'll have two services, and so in between they'll put me in their office. And so I kind of walk around and look at their bookcase. Now I'm looking for a couple of reasons. If all the books have about a quarter of an inch of dust on them, they're in there for show. They, they, they're really nice colors. You know, they, got, they really decorate an office well. If they don't have a single new book since what we required them to read in seminary, they've quit growing. And if they quit growing, their church quit growing. It's just, it's just a fact. Third, teach the Bible from the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I am in a very short moment going to show you some curriculum that I, I really am excited about. But I'm going to tell you, don't teach the quarterly. Lifeways, Chick-fil-A's, Ein, it doesn't matter. Teach this book. Out of this book. The quarterly is a commentary on the Bible. Any good quarterly should be a commentary. It's to help you to have to engage that, that word during the week. Now, if you want to take notes, I mean, most preachers use notes. I'm using notes right now. There's nothing wrong with that. So when you read at home and you're studying your quarterly, you take notes. If you're going to have an outline and you want to put it up in a PowerPoint like this, that's okay. Use technology today. Listen, I'm telling you, your, your people are using technology. You better. And, and use PowerPoints. Use illustrations. Use, you know, I, I still go in churches that are using flannel graph. Get a life. We're going to have to get into an age, and particularly if you're teaching children or youth, if you don't communicate in the ways they understand, they're not going to hear you. So, I know some of the questions about how do you teach the Bible from the Bible are this, that not everybody brings a Bible. Well, have some in the room, but I guess what? They will eventually. When you require them to open their Bible, they start bringing it. I can kind of tell a church. I, I'm, I'm an expository preacher. I try to teach verse by verse, kind of like you heard. And, and you wouldn't find a person in our church without a Bible because it would kind of like being going to play golf without any clubs. I mean, it's like, that's a beautiful course out here, but this is stupid. Why would I do that? So it will develop in time. Now, you do have another problem, and that is that many of the people who, particularly if you're reaching secular culture today, 
Some of your people who did not grow up in Southern Baptist VBS don't know where the books of the Bible are. So if you're studying a really hard-to-find book like Mordecai, some of y'all don't know where that one is, uh, help them find it. Now here's what I do a lot of times, even when I'm preaching at some of our largest churches, I'm going to say, uh, we're going to be studying from Habakkuk today. And you kind of see people go, oh, gee. And I say, I want you to do something with me. I said, open to the front of your Bible. Did you know that your Bible has a table of contents in it? A lot of people don't. I'm telling you the truth. And I said, well, I want you to do this. And I want to show you something interesting. There, there's two covenants, two testaments, an old and a new. And you say, everybody knows that. No, they don't. I'm telling you, this is a new world. We are living in a biblically illiterate world. If you ever watch any of those shows, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? If they did one based on Bible knowledge, I'm telling you, you would think it was the most funny, hilarious program on planet Earth. So it doesn't matter if you do this every week until you reinforce it. Uh, in the old, 39. In the new, 27. That's when we got 66 books. We're dealing with a prophet now. And so the first five books, and I do this, and mine are outlined, are the Pentateuch. You know why they're called the Pentateuch? Because the Pentateuch means five. It's the Torah. It's the, it's the Bible of the Old Testament. That's kind of their history of God's redemptive plan. Then you start a series of historical books that lead you all the way through to the middle of it, where you get some of the poetic books like Psalms and Proverbs. Then after that, you get the listing of the prophets. Now, that doesn't mean they were written in that order. Some of the prophets were in different places. But you're going to be finding... Habakkuk right there in the, in the list of those prophets. So in my Bible, it's on page 799. So let's turn to wherever it is in your Bible. It didn't take, you know, when I did my class, it didn't take a minute. And what it did was review for some. For the first time, people go, holy cow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. That's cool. That's fun. Uh, you can help them with little mnemonic devices. How do you remember, for example, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? General Electric Power Company. That's me. I memorized it. Did you know that all the T books are in alphabetical order? So the Timothy, Thessalonians, and Titus, they're in alphabetical order based on, so all you got to do is figure out your alphabet and you got it. So help people to kind of get to it to where they know it. So teach the Bible from the Bible. Don't ask them to open their quarterly. They, they don't, I don't even care if they bring the quarterly. We used to say quarterly brought. You remember when you had those little checks? They can read it at home, leave it at home, bring it with them if you want to. And I'll tell them, you know, mark something in your quarterly if you want to, bring it, we'll talk about that. And I may say, did you notice on page 87 the quarterly, a, a, an illustration that our guy used? What did you think of that? I might use it for a part of the question and answer, but the, the reason I want to teach the Bible from the Bible is because I want them to know where their Bible is. I, I want them to know how to find that Bible. I want them to mark it up. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't think in any way it profanes God's Word to mark it, underline it, you know, whatever helps you to understand it. This Word you're going to hide in, in your heart. So teach the Bible from the Bible in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing changes anyone's heart but the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. When a survey recently done was asked the question, why do you attend Sunday school? This was the answer most often given. Go ahead and click it one more time. That surprised me candidly. Because I think a lot of people are, at least I thought, they came for the fellowship. But when surveyed, they came because they learned more about the Bible. When asked, why do you attend the class that you do? The answer was, 
The teacher knows the Bible. So does that tell you anything about your study of God's Word? Number four, embody the lesson. The object lesson of every lesson is the teacher's life. If, if, you, if you're studying this and you have to say, God, this is about me. You, you need to do that before you get in that class. And, and if you have to be confessional about it, be confessional. I was, uh, I don't know how many of you know the name Homer Lindsay. Uh, any of you remember the name Jerry Vines? Well, Homer and Jerry were kind of, well, before Jerry, there was Homer. And then they were together for a while. Largest Sunday school church in Southern Baptist life in, in Jacksonville, Florida. So when I wrote the book, Revitalizing Sunday Morning Dinosaur, they bought all their teachers' copies. I think that was about 500 copies. So that was the most I sold at one time until I went to Bellevue recently. And so he had me down to teach it. Teachers' meeting was in the old sanctuary. So they would seat about 800. It was just out in front of me. And uh, Jerry was preaching that night. So it's teachers' meeting about 5 o'clock Sunday afternoon. Every teacher was there. And so I'm sitting on the platform. And Homer, I, I'd never met him till that night. Homer put his hand over on my leg, and he said, uh, he said, boy, and I said, yes, sir. He said, i got to make an announcement before you talk. And I said, okay, it's your, your church. I mean, I didn't say that. I thought that. He can do what he wants to. Well, he got up, and he said, uh, next Sunday, we're not going to be using the curriculum you had. He said, uh, we're running a little behind on budget. We're going to have five lessons on tithing. He said, I wrote them so they're good. And he said, uh, but if you don't personally tithe, he said, I'm going to invite you to leave your quarterly on your chair and leave now because you can't teach what you don't do. I'm going, holy cow, half my teachers would walk out at this point. Now, his didn't. And do you know that that great church built every building down there, including all those parking garages, never borrowed a dime, which your church could do too if everybody tithed? You know why? Because 80% of the income of your church comes from 20% of the people. And that 20% only gives an average of 2.5% of their income. Only about 2% of evangelical Christians today actually tithe. Now, what would happen in your church? I, I'm going to just do some math for you right now, blow your mind. What if I had told you today, I have a strategy that would quadruple your church budget? Would you be interested in this? Yeah, you would. 2.5% people. If, if you could change, and 25% would be tithers. So if you could change your giving level from 25 to 50%. So 25% of the people give 85% of the income, okay? So instead of 25%, you're going to move it to 50%, half. Are you with me? Those 25%, their average annual gift is 2.5% of their income. If half your people gave half a tithe, your church budget would quadruple in a week. So let's say your church budget right now is $200,000, $800,000. You would never borrow a dime to build a building, would you? You wouldn't have to. You could give more to missions. You could be more effective in reaching your community. One of the reasons we're not reaching our communities, we don't put enough money in there to reach lost people. I mean, when I go to a church and I'm there... And, I'll, and their business meeting, and I'll look under evangelism. There's almost no money under evangelism. We put more money in, in you know, senior adult trips to the parkway than we do reaching lost people. 
and kids' pizza parties. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do both of those, but I'm saying, how are we going to do the Great Commission if there's no money to do it? We're going to have to get serious about this. All right. I don't want to meddle anymore, so let's go to number five. Love and minister to students. When I, I kind of do a, uh, my own survey, this is not scientific, but when I ask people who is the most memorable Sunday school or high school teacher in your life? And they give me a name, and you probably just thought of one right then. And I'll say, tell me what they taught. Many times they can't even tell you the subject, but they can tell you what they did. They loved them. They believed in me. Uh, one of the things that kind of startled my faculty when I went to Southwestern Seminary is I put up a chart. I wish I'd kind of brought it today. But I put up a chart, and I, and, I, and I took four quadrants. So I kind of divided this like a pizza into four pieces, uneven pieces. And I said, uh, knowledge of a subject, skill. Like, let's do it today with teachers. So let's say we're going to give a percentage to your knowledge of the Word of God. How, how important is that to your ability to teach? Your skill in teaching, that you can exegete a passage, you can outline it. So skill. Third one, attitude. Fourth one, ability to build relationships. If we're going to total those four things up to 100%, what would you think knowledge of the subject would be? And I'm dealing with this in a seminary, which is pretty knowledge, skill-driven. So you got classes for preaching, you got classes for baptizing, you got classes for administrating, you got classes on theology. So if we were going to put a number on that, what would you think? 25%, 50%, 10%, what? Knowledge of the subject. Oh, you're kind of afraid, aren't you? 25. Okay, 25. What about skill, ability in exegeting, outlining, doing a sermon, whatever? What would you put on that one? Fifteen, ten, whatever. Okay, we're at 35. Ability to build relationships. High. 50? What about attitude? High too. Here, here's the answer. Attitude and ability to build relationships added together is 85%. So I'd rather have a teacher that's green and growing than one that's ripe and rotten. <laughs> if they got a bad attitude towards church, I don't want them. Because they'll spread it. If they don't care about it, I used to have pre uh, these preacher boys, they'd drive me to the airport when I was at Southwestern. They'd say, you know, Dr. Hemphill, you know, pastoring would be fun if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> and they, what, they, they wanted a pulpit. They wanted to preach. That's, that's all they wanted to do. They didn't want pastor. They didn't like people. You know, sheep are stinky. And, and if you minister to sheep, you're going to smell like sheep. You just do. I mean, you can't get over it. So, you, if your students know that you love them and you care about them, so you can't leave that all up to the care leaders. We'll talk about that. Number six, encourage members to bring unsaved friends. It was an interesting study, a D-men study a couple years ago because 
One of the things you'll find in this revitalized Sunday morning dinosaur, what we encouraged was people to bring their unsaved friends to their small group. Did you know that Barna recently did a report that said that three-fourths of unsaved people, that's 75% of unsaved friends. Now, let's think about it. Let's say you've got uns eight unsaved friends right now. I mean, six of them, at three-fourths, indicated they would go to a Bible study next week if they were taken by a friend. That doesn't cost a dime in your budget. So what our strategy was, was bring your unsaved friend to Sunday school. Now, you know what the two powers are in there? The Holy Spirit, because when Christians get together, what? Two or three are gathered together. There, I'm in their midst. It's not just a prayer promise. So the Holy Spirit is, is powerfully there, and the Word of God is being taught there. Most of our people were saved in Sunday school. Now, that doesn't happen in, in most churches because they don't plan for it to happen. We found, particularly as we got larger, I mean, our church would worship 3,000, 2,200 Sunday school. People more likely to come into that small group than they were into that worship center. It's too big. It, it intimidated them. So the uh, only way you're going to encourage them to do that is you do it. There's the modeling process. Number seven, ensure that class members receive appropriate ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that you do it all. But all of our ministry occurred through the Sunday school. I'm going to show you this in the Velcro book. The Velcro book stands for valuing each person as a gift to God, engaging each guest with intentionality, uh, loving each friend to Christ, connecting each to community, uh, recognizing that relationships are the key, organizing for ongoing care. This is the little book we'll study in the second half. This, again, is designed as a six-week Bible study. Every chapter has... A biblical passage it has inductive Bible study questions and then it has make it stick application and so one of the things that I've done is I've taken everything I know about church growth and I'm putting it in a Bible study format because I got frustrated going into pastor studies seeing a book I had written about church growth on his shelf and he'd say well I enjoyed that but I tried to do that in my church and and they wouldn't have it so this is the key, getting your people on board in the same kind of thing. We'll talk about that in the next session. Eight, nine's the big one, so I'm going to give you practical tips. Strive to give birth to a new class each year and reproduce yourself. This is how you double your Sunday school. One of the goals that we put in, in, in the back of this book, Revitalizing, is our covenant card for our Sunday school teachers. We ask our teachers that if the Holy Spirit allows that you will strive to give birth to a new class next year. Now, let me tell you what that means in your language. Split my class. You're wanting to split my class. No. We want your class to give birth to a class. So what would happen, and, and you say, when do you give birth to a new class? Well, there's a couple of rules to that. If, if the room is 80% full, uh, it won't grow anymore. So let's say your Sunday school class facility will hold 20 people once it passes 16 in attendance you can enroll till Jesus comes and you'll still have 16 people that's why enrollments keep growing and attendance doesn't so the only way that that thing's going to grow anymore is that you you give birth to a new class so that class gives birth to a class and you say we wouldn't have enough teachers that's why we ask every teacher to reproduce themselves let me tell you who I learned this from I'm, 
I, I give credit where credit's due. Any of you ever heard of a man named Paul Yongicho? Paul Yongicho pastors the largest church in the world. It's in Seoul, Korea. Full gospel church. I think they have eight or nine services on Sunday morning because their building only seats about 10,000. He has 600,000 people enrolled in small groups. About 10 to 20 per small group, which means that there's somewhere around 25, 30,000 small groups. I, don't, I, I can't even comprehend it. And so I'm thinking, who in the world trains all the leaders for these things? I asked him that question. He said, not my job. I'm thinking, you must have a really good staff, and all of them must be Harry Pylon's clones, if you remember Harry, Mr. Sunday School. And he said, not, not their job. I said, whose job is it? He said, it's the teacher's job. He said, when a cell divides, the nucleus divides first. And it's the nucleus of the cell that initiates the division of the cell. So we ask every cell leader, that would be Sunday school teacher in our context, that their goal is, out of their class, to reproduce themselves in another teacher. It, it's genius, because guess what? You know in your class who is studying, who's participating. You know who has that potential, who might be gifted to teach. And so what you do is begin to encourage them in that year and say, hey, I'd love to sit down with you and show you how I prepare a lesson, and let's just talk through it. And and then the church, of course, when they come forward, would provide the additional teaching. But we ask that. Number nine. Now, here's where we're going to break down some practical tips. <coughs> Number one, adequate preparation is essential. This means that you must know both the biblical material and the needs of the student. It, it, there's two things that we wanted all of our students to know, uh, all of our teachers, the Bible and their students. What, because how do, you, how do you make that word come alive to them if you don't know what's going on in their life? Now, this is where uh, the care leaders come into the place. So as you prepare the lesson, write down both general goals and specific outcomes desired. That's one of the things I teach our little preacher guys. If I'm going to preach on Ephesians 1, then what is it that I want to happen? What, what do I want people to know, first of all? What do I want them to know? And what do I want them to do? If you can't explain that, I, I'm, I'm working right now with a D-Men student, and, and I'm going to sit down with him and ask him, what were you trying to tell me in chapter 2 before we go through it? Because I can't figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, guess what? He didn't know what it was. And so if somebody walks out of your class and they go, I wonder what that was about. Now, you know, I got good information on Ephesians 1, but so write down, as you do your study at home, what intended goal? What, what do I want them to know is one question. So I want them to know this concept of fullness in, in the church. What do I want them to do about it? Well, I want them to go back and, and ask, is that happening in my class or in my life, in my church? So if you can't articulate that up front, they won't be able to do it going out the back door. So first of all, be able to do that. If you can't articulate what students should know as a result of the lesson, they won't know it. So knowing goals and desired outcomes will help you decide on a teaching approach for a particular lesson. Now, there are different styles of teaching. Lecture is what I'm doing right now. 
That's one style when there's a lot of information. Discussion is another one. Uh, illustration is a teaching style that can be a part of a lesson. Jesus did this often with parables. Jesus taught in pictures. And so we've got a lot of techniques today that relate to teaching that it's, we didn't have years ago. This whole thing up here, because what you hear and see, you have a more of a chance of remembering it than just hearing it. Now, if you hear and see and interact with it, the, the learning possibility goes up incrementally each time. So there are some lessons that may actually require a little more lecture. And, and that's not bad. You, you want to vary it. But so the next lesson may be something that really is more application. So you may think in that lesson, okay, I'll talk for 10 or 15 minutes and I'm going to put them in some small groups to interact. Because they don't, you know, and, and, and there's an, uh, I, I realize there's an age thing here too. Most of us senior adults, and I am one now, we kind of grew up in lecture mentality and that's kind of what we think of Sunday school. But young adults, they didn't do that. So they're going to be more discussion oriented. So understanding your students, student needs, also understanding the material helps you to design what is it I'm going to do with that. Now, sometimes if I do a conference like this and I have more time, I'll actually do a little bit of both. I'll do some lecture, then I'll have them respond to it or get in small groups and say, how can your church do this? Uh, number two, use the Bible as your text. We've already covered that once, but it is so important to me. Uh, using the Bible as the text will encourage students to read and mark their Bible. So you need to be prepared to help them find the text in their Bible. So I told all of my teachers, I don't care what your material is, I want you in this book. Let them look at it in their Bible, not in yours. Um, <clears throat> thirdly, vary your teaching methods. Again, based on content, needs of class, age of class. When using questions in your class, favor open-ended questions which encourage discussion. Now, <clears throat> some of the questions I used a while ago, most of you were thinking there's a trick. And, and that's why there was a reluctance. And I understand that. A reluctance to respond. Well, he already knows the answer to that. So, a good discussion question is more open-ended. For example, you might ask about uh, Zacchaeus, what do you think? What do you think was going on in his life that encouraged him to climb that tree? There's not a verse that answers that, is there? But we can go back and think about it. You know, the fact that he was dealing with some issues in his own life. He was miserable. He had money. Had no friends. So, <coughs> excuse me. That kind of discussion is valid because it's an open-ended question. It has. It has variety of things. So try to think of some of those questions where people are not sitting there going, oh gosh, I can't remember. Was that Zerubbabel or was that? So if you ask a question that has a definitive answer, you have a temptation that nobody responds. Do not ask people to read the scripture without prior notice. This is one of the common mistakes that I see in many classes. In fact, I attended a men's class when I was at home. When I was in Fort Worth, I'm not going to tell you the church or the class, doesn't matter. And the teacher would start about every Sunday by going, okay, you read verse 1, you get verse 2, you get verse 3. And in other words, you kind of go around the room. You know what happens? The reading is so uneven that nobody knows what the text was. But the other thing that happens, if, if I'm verse 6, I'm reading it 
while you're reading verse 1 because I want to know, did I get a word I don't know? I'm going, oh, gee, what is verse 6? And so nobody knows what's read. And if you've got somebody who has a problem reading, by the way, 60-some percent of Americans are functionally illiterate. So that means they may not be able to read this book. And you don't want them back next Sunday, guess what? You ask them to read it, they're, they're through. They're not going to do it. Some never read in public. Some are poor readers. And they're all in your church, I'm promising you right now. So it's okay if you want someone to read it, but call them. You know, call them on Friday night and say, hey, John, would you uh, mind, this next Sunday we're in John 1, first 12 verses, would you mind reading them? Would you look over it and see if you're comfortable with that. I'd love for you to take part in the class. That's a good way to involve somebody, but don't spring it on them that morning. And don't just kind of partition the text. That's not a good way to get people involved. By the way, uh, I don't know how many of you use Lifeway curriculum. Josh Hunt writes good questions for them. Uh, he's a guy out of, uh, it's, it's called Good Questions is what his material is called. He writes good questions for all of our material. So, and before we end, I'll tell you about how to get a hold of our curriculum. But if you go on the website, Everything that we teach, he's got good questions. I mean, there are books that just give you 40 questions on a lesson that are open-ended questions that talk about who Jesus was and how. So uh, it's a teacher's duty to ensure that doctrinal integrity is maintained. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, there will occasionally be times when somebody gives an inappropriate interpretation of a text. The text doesn't give itself to every interpretation. That's, that's what leads to heresy and cults. So in that context, if there's discussion and somebody comes up with a, a bizarre interpretation that is not a part of, of your doctrinal conviction in your church, the teacher does have a responsibility. And you can lovingly correct it. You don't go, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You lovingly say, well, you know, that text can't mean that for this reason. So. Because if we don't correct it, guess what? You, you're going to find it in your church if you don't. So there is a place where there has to be in discussion. You will occasionally get a doctrinal concept that doesn't square. And you just have to lovingly say, that, that's not our conviction. Here's why. Uh, when you look at Jesus as a model of teaching, he used pictures, he used parables, he used current events, current illustrations. Uh, so that's fine. You, in, in fact, that's a way to get people into the lesson oftentimes. Use appropriate literature. Now, you say, what does appropriate literature should look like? There's going to be some characteristics. I'm not going to, I, I'm going to tell you about ours, but I'm not saying you need to use ours, but here's what any appropriate literature is. Go ahead. It needs to be doctrinally sound. So one of the things that we've done is that all of our writers, because I'm Southern Baptist by conviction, and by birth are all strong evangelical Southern Baptists. Secondly, it should be comprehensive. Uh, in a period of time, you want to cover the whole Bible, and you want to cover the major doctrines of the Bible, and you may want to cover some of the topics that are important. So uh, it should be comprehensive. Thirdly, it should communicate biblical content that will facilitate lifestyle change. Again, it's not enough to teach for information. You want to teach for what? Transformation. Uh, go ahead. It should be age appropriate. 
So again, uh, obviously, you, you've got children's material for children, etc. Next one. It should be carefully designed, making it easy to study and to teach. Next one. It should be affordable. In, in our marketplace, if it is not affordable, it's going to be, uh, churches are beginning to cut back on their literature order. Uh, next one should be open-ended not a closed-end study. Now let me define this for you because these are terms that are used in Sunday school teaching. An open-ended study literally means that anybody can enter it at any time and exit it at any time. A closed-end study is something like experiencing God. Uh, you remember 25 years ago Henry Blackaby did a pretty famous study called Experiencing God. Some of you ladies probably have done a Beth Moore study. And it, it is a six-week, an eight-week, whatever it is. And the truth of the matter is, once that study has been going two or three weeks, you really can't get in it because you wouldn't know what was happening. You, you, it builds every week. So it's kind of like walking into a class on trigonometry mid-semester. And it's like you, you can't catch up. Now, closed-in studies generally in Baptist churches have been done in a discipleship training context, whether that's at night or Wednesday night or another night. In other words, when there's a group that you're going to start and you're going to finish it. You're going to start together and you're going to finish together. An open-ended study is Sunday school where somebody may be there two weeks and they may be gone a week or two. Maybe their, their business requires that or maybe they're on vacation. Then they come back and in that fifth week, they get right back into the lesson. And, and so the lessons really need to be written so that every week stands alone. But that when you finish the 12, 13 weeks, you've got a whole pattern. And that's been the hardest part that I've had to struggle with in, in helping the guys that I'm asking to help me write curriculum. And that is that it, they tend to want to write a book. But a book, as you realize, kind of has starting to finish and you got to stay all the way through it and so I'm saying all of these have to kind of stand together but you got to realize somebody may only come for the middle two or they may be a guest and only come for one Sunday and they need to encounter God's word in a way that would uh, impact them go ahead teach for transformation not just for information I think that's uh, is there another slide up there I forget what I had Casey put on this one um, okay, let me, let me take two minutes on the book table just to give you an idea, and we do. Uh, one of the things I told you is you get them at wholesale prices here. Uh, on this table, on this left side, and there is credit card, cash, or check, are some books that my wife and I use for gifts. We've found that giving books is one of the great ways to do evangelism, and uh, I'm just going to pick up a few of them, and, and I'll, ta I'll be at the table, and I'll take a break with you, and we'll have some time before and after the conference. Um, this one is by a guy named Stephen Trammell. Living Water, it's 365 days of devotion. Here's the good news about this one. This is a $20 book uh, that we've got on the table today for $6. It's great if you want to give them to your Sunday school teachers. Maybe you've got friends. This is more a gift for Christians. You say, why are you doing it that cheap? We did these through my company for their church to raise money for a mission trip. And so we had an overage in our print run of a couple hundred, and so we're just getting them out of the warehouse. So that's essentially printing costs. So if you've got some people you'd like to give a Christmas gift that's a really nice gift, that's one of them. 
My wife and I started doing this with this one. This is a, the prayer of Jesus. I wrote this one. It's on the Lord's Prayer. People love the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we gave this to our neighbor. In fact, we gave this to all of our friends. Uh, we were living in Hendersonville, Tennessee in a condominium. And there were like 12 on our little cul-de-sac. I didn't know but two of them. And one of them was my pastor who lived two condos up. Guy next to me, I played golf with the case. That's all I knew because I was gone 250 days a year. So at Christmas, we took around these little books. My wife made some cranberry nut bread. And we said, we just wanted to give you a little gift, get to know you better. Uh, this lady died of cancer three months after getting this book. And this book was responsible for her being in eternity. And it, and it led to this concept for us. So today, there's a journal to this as well. This book is normally $10. It's a beautiful hardback book. It's got a journal that goes with it, and I bought all the journals out from Lifeway so you can get both of them today for $10. So if you've got some people that are your prayer partners or prayer groups, and I'm doing your Christmas shopping for you, so thank me, uh, you get them both for $10. That's $18 value. And Lifeway, when, when they're getting ready to discontinue something, they will sell them to the author. And I happen to be able to get these at about $2. And so uh, I'm just kind of passing them out that way. It's a really neat little journal. If you've got a prayer partner, that's a great one. This one is a great book for any of your teachers. This is the hardback version that you'll see in our curriculum called Core Convictions. If you ever wanted to understand systematic theology, most of you go, I don't know what that means. It, it's going through the Bible based on the Bible. What does it say about God? What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about man? If you ever went to seminary, you would love to have had this book. Because most systematic theologies are about that big. This is 850 words, each chapter. The Trinity, the Second Coming. This is a fabulous book for teenagers, for anybody you want to give it to in hardback. And you say, why? And they, these are only $5. And the reason is we've gone straight to paperback because we found churches didn't want to pay the extra money for a hardback quarterly. So this isn't our curriculum series, but it's a hardback book. There are five little books on the side. If you're looking for stocking stuffers, these are just $3 a piece. And it's all 53 names of Jesus. That's like a tract on steroids, I'm telling you. And all of these have the plan of salvation in the back. My wife taught me how to do this because she had cancer when I was publishing these. And these two books right here, every time she'd go to chemotherapy, she'd take them. We can and but God. Every verse in this book has but God in it. it most of them are Old Testament. It looks impossible. Then it says, but God. God. So there's several more on this table I'll help you with. This is uh, something I'm, I'm as excited about as anything I've ever done. This is Sunday school curriculum. How would you like to get a beautiful paperback book for less than the flimsy quarterly that you don't read and throw away? Affordable. Most churches will end up, I'm going to tell you how to get these for $3 a piece. Your Sunday school quarterly is about $3.85. Buy them through your DOM. We sell straight to DOMs at 40% off. It's been our ministry, our goal. And the reason is they come 36 to a case. Uh, and some smaller churches say, we don't need but 24. Go to your DOM. Because if you bought one case from us, they're going to be 450 apiece. That, that we ship by the case. This comes out of North Greenville University, part of our center. And you say, why have they got different colors? I'm glad you asked that. There are four different categories of books. Theology. That's the first one up there is called Connected Communities, Doctrine of the Church. That one, 
probably is my favorite book in the series. Mount Airy Baptist Church getting ready to do this one right now. They've done the others. It's about why we do church. This one's the systematic theology. That's the hardback book I showed you in the quarterly. How about the entire Old Testament story in that much? It takes you through the entire story of the Old Testament. Creation, fall, flood, Abrahamic covenant, redemption, Exodus 19 and 20, the commissioning of a nation, period of the judges, fall, rebellion, restoration, period of the kings, monarchy, divided monarchy, the ter- in the Babylonian captivity, and the response in Ezra and Nehemiah, the latter prophets that show us the coming of Jesus. How many of your people could tell you the entire storyline of the Old Testament? 12, 13-week study. Uh, New Testament, how about that one? The entire New Testament story. Six chapters on Matthew, the life of Jesus. Six on the book of Acts, the continuing work of Jesus through his community. This one is our bestseller. It just came out. It's called Pray Like It Matters from Steve Gaines. It's got a green. And so anytime you see the green one, it's going to be topical. It'll be a topic like prayer, some area of topic. If you see this cover, it'll be New Testament. So Ephesians will have this color stripe, different picture, color stripe. So we use a one color cover because it saves you money. We use beautiful bright white paper so that senior adults can read it. Black print, I'm a senior adult, black print on white paper. So if you want one set of these, all five of these, you can have them for $15. That's $3 a piece. They're usually $5 a piece. All the other stuff on the table we'll be dealing with at due time. If you teach youth parenting with kingdom purpose, and you say, why would I want a parenting book? Because Richard Ross is the author of the material called True Love Waits. If you work with youth, you've got to have this book. If you've got teenagers, you want this book. It tells you how to keep them on kingdom purpose. The Revitalizing Sunday Morning Dinosaur. Uh, Bonsai Theory is the best-selling book on the table. It tells you barriers that can keep your church from growing naturally. There's some other stuff. I don't know how many of you would like your budget to go up. This one is a six-week Bible study, Making Change. I can get you the study guides and the DVDs for that, and it's a study that goes all the way through how cooperative program works. So it's, uh, and there's three of these different kinds of studies. Uh, you are gifted. This is a closed-in study. Uh, got DVD-driven study guides. We've got materials on sale for half price right now on those things. I bought out all the kits. I know this is like drinking from a fire hose, isn't it? You're going, what was that book, you know? I bought out all the kits from Lifeway on the Prayer of Jesus. That's a $100 kit for $50. And we got the study guides for half price, too. So instead of going to Lifeway store and paying $10, you can get them for $5. It's a closed-in study. In other words, it's a discipleship study. So there's some discipleship materials. There's some of the others. Questions before we take our break. If you'll be back by 11, I'll still get you out before 12. So you got 22, three minutes. Somebody tell us how to get to the fellowship hall. Left. Through the door, left. All right. And I will be at the table. Uh, We've already had several questions. Checks, just write them to me because I purchase all these from my publishers. That's how I can sell them to you at my author's price. There's credit card, and there's, of course, cash. So I'll be glad to help you. Everything, you'll see the discounted price. You can pick it up, look at it, the real price, and get your price on it. And I do have enough quantity. If some of you said, well, I want to start the New Testament study now, or I want to get one for all my teachers. When I drive, I can carry that much quantity. So I've got all of that, and I'll stay up here and work with you. Somebody bring me some water back up. Out the door to the left. Take off, come back by 11.
So let's just do the math. If you have 100 people attending worship, you should have how many guests every Sunday? Four to five. Second one is, the average non-growing church will only get a retention or a second visit or return visit of 9%. So that means, uh, let's get a little larger one. If you have a church that would be 200 in attendance, you should have about 10 visitors. And the non-growing church only gets about one back. Whereas the growing church will get about three, two and a half to three back. In other words, there, there's something that makes that person want to come back, whether it's the service itself, whether it's uh, the fact that somebody called them. So there was some initiation between week one and week two or three when they came back. Now, maybe they've moved into the community and they visit a church. Maybe they visit another church, another church. Then they come back to your church. It's almost like if you're shopping for a car, you may go to two or three dealers comparing prices when you come back to a dealer, that's a pretty serious thing. You're now negotiating. You're now looking to close a deal. So the numbers are very important. And people, a lot of times, churches don't even track this to know how many visitors do we have, how many guests do we have there. People say, I can't get guests to return cards. Well, one of the things that we do use, a lot of churches use one of these little small books. In fact, uh, a lot of churches use a book like God Is, which has all 53 names of Jesus in it. If you're a guest or visitor today, we have a little gift for you. If you simply bring that card to the vestibule, we'll put this gift in your hand. It's amazing what people do for a gift. Uh, the other one I would consider something like this. Uh, I don't know if you have ever read book, Fusion. It's a great book by Nelson Searcy. Uh, his church in New York City, one of the fastest growing churches, and that's hard in New York. No parking, no anything and he basically wrote a book about how do you get folks to come back one of his primary statements early in the book is that most churches are too cheap to grow in other words they don't have anything in budget for their guests they don't do anything for guests and he makes an interesting point for example a lot of the contemporary churches may have coffee and donuts out and he said if you have donuts out don't put the donut nazi in charge and that somebody says okay you've already had a donut you can't have but one donut you know you know, there's somebody there monitoring that, the donut Nazi. In other words, he said, be generous. Whatever it is, be generous. So the, these are little books. We have the God is, a lot of things. Now, the, the Part of the thing is how do you get them back? Now, the average church is going to lose 5 to 8% of its attendance each year. So that means if you're running 100, and this could be people moving out. It could be people dying. So when you look at your attendance, if you're not growing to 5 by 8, from somewhere between 5 and 8%, you're going to decline. You're going to decline naturally if you don't do that. So, <clears throat> go on to the next slide. We'll just kind of keep these going. Uh, here's an interesting stat that came from Lifeway. The percentage of new Christians who remain active five years after joining. So, this is the retention issue. So, when you get to Velcro, there are two different issues. One is, how do we get guests? How do we get guests to return? And how do we keep members from leaving? So there's two, two sides of this thing. Velcro is called a hooks and latch method. When you look at Velcro under a microscope, in one side of it, there are a lot of little bitty, like a little, little almost look like fish hooks. The other side are little loops. It's, it's the, he thought it was velvet, but it wasn't. And it was crochet. So that the crocheting needle will go through that. So the more of these loops and the more of the hooks you have, the harder the Velcro holds. So you got some Velcro, like the Velcro on little kids' tennis shoes, that's pretty easy to take off. Some Velcro is really hard because the more hooks 
and the more loops you have the harder it, it, it maintains itself so if you get people active in Sunday school in a period of five years 83 percent of them are still in which means essentially everybody because you're going to lose some based on their moving out of town now what if you get them in worship only which is kind of a trend today go ahead and click it again if you would <coughs> that's scary guys <coughs> some of these churches that are going to kind of where they're really focusing on worship as the front door etc that's fine but if you get them in the front door and you don't get them in small group you're still going to lose them and the truth of the matter is <coughs> the percentage is just startling <coughs> I'm sorry I'm still struggling with this throat go ahead to the next slide I'm not doing anything to this so I don't know what it is so what is Velcro? Chapter 1 is valuing each person as a gift of God. Chapter 2 is engaging each guest or every guest with intentionality. Chapter 3 is to lead our friends to Christ. Now notice what's happening up here. We're moving from a person to a guest to a friend. In other words, we're moving towards, did you meet somebody in the community? First off, it's just kind of a person next thing you're going to do is invite them into your home invite them to your small group bible study bring them to church they become a guest not a visitor a guest you, you want to change your language and your thought process from a visitor to a guest and then you want to move them to where they become a friend now go ahead then they're going to connect to community they're going to become family here when they connect to community that's when the holy spirit integrates them in the life of your church then the next one is that you must recognize the relationships are the key to assimilation. If a person joins your church and they cannot identify seven good friends within seven weeks, you will lose them. That's just fact. So if they join your church next Sunday and they don't know, they haven't met people and really gotten enough. Now that's the problem with that large sanctuary thing that you don't, you don't meet friends in the sanctuary. You can shake hands, you know, and churches do that, get up and shake hands. But you don't meet people and talk and, and get to know people. You don't invite people out to, to lunch during that time. So we're going to have to get more intentional about this. Then finally is organizing small groups for ongoing care. We describe our entire care ministry that we did in First Norfolk. Now, we enrolled everybody in Sunday school, and our goal was to contact everybody every week. You say, well, did you do that? Because we had 6,000 members. Answer is we got pretty close. We would have five to 6,000 contacts a week. Now, it's not as hard as you think. We, we did it through our deacon ministry. So we had a deacon assigned to every class. Deacon had care leaders, and a care leader had no more than four persons or families to call. So when Desert Storm hit, I was the pastor at First Norfolk. I called the chairman deacon. Chairman deacon called department deacons. Follow the number of phone calls here. Department deacon called the class deacons. Class deacons called the care leaders. Care leaders called the family. Five calls. We notified 6,000 people. <coughs> we found out. <coughs> I apologize. I can't. <coughs> I've got cough drops. It's just not helping. <coughs> So the, the last one is you organize that. All right, let's go on to the next slide. <coughs> the distinctives of this Velcro process, as I told you, this is kind of the first church growth. Go ahead, just click them all up because we're running close on time. <coughs> 
This process is based on the premise that nothing changes the mind or behavior but the Word of God by the Spirit of God. The strategy emerges from the study of the Bible. So every week there is a Bible study that's a part of this. So you could literally break your Sunday school, do the Velcro study, which is assimilation, go back and do one of the other studies. And then there is an encountering the Word. If you have the Velcro book and you want to look at it, you'll see that the first part is the study of the Scripture. The second part is uh, some lines and places where you write inductive uh, answers to inductive <laughs> Bible study questions. The final part is called make it stick. Now, in the make it stick portion, that's where we have something I can do, personal action. What am I going to do about this? Then there's a group action. What is my Sunday school class going to do? How do we embrace this? The third one is church-wide action. So we encourage that if a church is going to do this study, they appoint an assimilation team or a Velcro team. <coughs> Call it whichever you like. Go ahead to the next slide. Um, <coughs> one of the first things you do is you teach people how to build relationships with the lost. I was an interim pastor at uh, Simpsonville last summer, and we actually did the splash study on Wednesday nights with all of our people. And they, our attendance built every week. A little old lady in her 80s attended. I mean, she was there every week. She had marked her book up. At the end of this, she came up to me, and she said, Pastor, I've been in the church all my life. And she said, I always got the impression from our pastors that we need to keep our distance from the unsafe people. We need to, you know, kind of stay away from them. And she said, you're telling me that I needed to build a relationship with an unsafe person for the gospel's sake. She said, no wonder we haven't been baptizing anybody. You see, we don't know lost people. And if we do, we don't even spend any time with them. And <coughs> the fact of the matter is, as you look at Jesus' life, the biggest accusation against him was what? He spent too much time with lost people. And that's what the Pharisees kept saying. That's what the church kept saying about him, man. And boy, wouldn't it be nice if people accused you as the pastor of spending way too much time with lost people? I've had people accuse me of that. You know, the truth of the matter is, you recognize reward people for bringing friends. One of the things that we did on a regular basis is that if, if somebody <coughs> was responsible for leading somebody to Christ, we kind of recognize that during the time of baptism. Dr. W.A. Criswell was a genius at this. <coughs> I've got a cough drop and water both. <coughs> right now, neither are working. Consider a splash study, schedule a friend day. How many of you have done a friend day? It's an old concept, still works. <coughs> I think it came out of Liberty. Um, Elmer Towns, Brother Elmer, and, and it's so simple, you don't even need to buy the kit because basically you set a Sunday and you tell people to pray for a lost person and, you know, encourage, invite, bring them that day. You do something special. A lot of churches will kind of give a, a gift away, a book or something on that day to every friend that's brought. And, and it's just real simple because, again, do you know that if you were to every year Outreach Magazine does a, a research project. I believe it's Outreach Magazine. And the question is, why did you go to the particular church you went to? And they list things like location, building, the facilities, uh, the program, youth program, choir program, things of that nature, the pastor, uh, the music program, 
79, the lowest I've seen, to 86% of people go to the church they attend today because they were brought <coughs> by a friend or relative. <coughs> Nothing else in that category gets over 5%. Not the pastor, not the budget, not the location, not the programming. And you may say, well, we just can't attract people because we don't have that big youth program. We can't attract people because we don't have a big choir and orchestra. We can't attract. You don't attract people because your people aren't inviting people. That's, that's the bottom line. All right, let's go on. Uh, what, what, what I encourage people to do is that if you create this Velcro or assimilation team, you want the people most skilled to do it. Who, who are people in your church that are just kind of outgoing? Who are people in your church that are really concerned when people are missing? It, you know, so, <coughs> so you need people not that they're just there because they need another committee to serve on or team. It ought to be endorsed by the entire church family. I, re, I really suggest that you consider moving to universal enrollment. And that is that you view your enrollment in Sunday school as a ministry list and not an attendance list. What happens in a lot of churches is that they take people off the Sunday school role when they start missing. You remember, <coughs> I grew up in Sunday school. I still remember when you had the two boards. You remember those? And they'd come out between service. They'd put up how many had been there. Then they'd give a Sunday school report every Sunday. You remember that? They'd come out between Sunday school and worship, and they had a Sunday school report. And we used to give two green banners. I don't know if you got them or not, we, but there were two of them. One was for the highest attendance, what class had the highest attendance today. The second one was for the highest average attendance. It was the two worst things to do for Sunday school. Because highest attendance creates this mindset, don't divide my class and don't take anybody out of here to work. So you get this big, a lot of times, big Bible class or a big men's class. And they'll say, don't you come in here and get any of my people. Because we're going to win that trophy. Don't ask us to split our class, because then we wouldn't win. The, the other one, the highest average attendance, that's easy to win. You know what? You just get rid of anybody on your roll, it won't come. So if they don't come two or three weeks, throw them in the trash can. We, uh, you say, how do you get everybody to get enrolled in Sunday school? Well, there's, there's the easy way, and there's my way. We did it the hard way. I, I decided, based on the book of Acts that the New Testament church was organized around large group worship, small group Bible study. So if that's the way church organized, that's what I want my church to be like. So I preached that. I shared it with our congregation. So the church as a whole endorsed that. So we literally took everybody that was on church roll and enrolled them in a Sunday school class. And that Sunday school class went to visit them. And asked them to come, be a part of it, and said, if you can't come, we're still going to enroll you. Because that's how we began to care for people. When you got 6,000 members, you can't do it through a pastor and staff. In fact, if the only ministry that occurs, <coughs> or the only time people think they've been ministered to, with, is the pastor going, your church will never exceed 150 in attendance. I don't care who he is, can't do it. It's, it's an unbiblical pattern. Ephesians 4.11, pastor, teacher, equips the saints to do work of service. 
So you've got to change the mindset of the church that says it's a pastor-only ministry. See, the, the biblical church is pastor-led, deconserved, member ministry. We, we've reversed it. Many of our churches are deacon-led, pastor-served, and pastor ministry. So you've taken most of the congregation out of the work. They're out of the equation. Plus, you've got multiple administrators instead of a single administrator. The pastor, you need to hire a pastor you trust and let him administrate the church. That's just the task that God has given him. And then they have to be deacons who serve. Now, we actually assigned all of our deacons to a Sunday school class, and they were the caretaker over that flock. Now you say, is there an easier way than what you're talking about? Yeah. You could go to a process where you say, okay, starting from this day forward, whatever that is, your next uh, strategy session or business meeting, whatever it is, you come in with a, a, a proposal that every any member that joins from now will automatically be rolled in a small group. That, that doesn't, no pain, no pressure. You say, here's why. Then <coughs> you essentially grandfather everybody that's already there. Now, if, if I were doing it that way, I would still ask them to become a part of small. I'd give them the invitation. Say, we're moving to a strategy as a church because we believe it's a biblical pattern where everybody is not only a part of our worship experience, but they're also a part of small group Bible study. I'd base it on Acts chapter 2. There's plenty of texts that you can deal with this. So that you say, this is how first century church was organized. It's how God designed his church, and we want to be a part of that biblical design and so we're going to move to that. Now, it, every member from now on, that's not a problem because somebody joins your church, you tell them that a part of your responsibility as a church member is small group Bible study, large group worship experience. And, and so that's what they know. I mean, that, so coming in, that's, that's the accountability. So then you can say to those who are already members, because if you were to look at the average church role, let's say you've got 400 on roll, you probably have about 200 enrolled in Sunday school. I'm talking about different church role and Sunday school role. You with me? So you probably, a church of 400 members a lot of times will have about 200 enrolled in Sunday school, about 100 attending. So you got one-fourth of those people attending. What we discovered when we went out, we literally went out and enrolled everybody. We went to their home. Many of them, you say, did any of them get mad at you? Yeah. Not many. Most of them said, this is the first time anybody's visited me since I joined four years ago. I'm serious. Or some of them said, it's the only time anybody came to my house and didn't want money. We'd gone through a lot of building programs, and so we kind of did that house-to-house -house pledging during that time. But nobody came here to say, you know, <coughs> we're organizing our entire church through small groups because that's the only way we can care for spiritual needs. And, and you've been enrolled in our small group, and whether you attend or not, we're going to be calling on you on a regular basis just to make sure that uh, there's any way we can care for you. Um, so assign anyone who joins but is unconnected to small group. Once a member is connected, a visitor call should be made. Now, Mount Airy Baptist, uh, they're, they're in their third ones of this curriculum. Guess what they've decided to do? They called me the other day. They're getting ready to start connected community now. So they've finished Old Testament, New Testament, and I think Core Connections. And so they ordered extra ones of those three books because when somebody joins their church, they're going to put those three books in their hand 
and say, we have already done this in our small group Bible study, so we want you to have the same collection. Because the idea behind non-disposable curriculum is not that your church uses it over and over, but you're building a Christian library for their family. So you want to put it in their hands and say, we've already been through this, so we want you to have it. And here is the one we're in now. And they use that as a tool to enroll them in Sunday school. So every new member is given everything the church has already studied in that series plus that new book so that they're now connected to that Sunday school class. So if you joined our church when I was in Norfolk this Sunday, you walked the aisle, however it was done, somebody from that Sunday school class, a teacher, a care leader, an outreach leader, or a combination of those, or their family, i.e. husband and wife, would come by your home and say, uh, I'm Ken and Paula Hemphill, and we're part of a small group Bible study group, and you've been enrolled in our group, and we're excited about your being there. And I just wanted to catch you up on where we are. We're right now working through New Testament survey, and we're in week three, but we've got the book for you, and, and uh, you can read those first two chapters, and you'll kind of be where we are, or you can just start in week three for this week. So that you use that to integrate them. So we made a visit or a call once they had joined. Let me tell you why we did that. When I was in Norfolk, we used faith evangelism kind of EE through Sunday school. We basically did. And we were super aggressive evangelistically. If you visited our church, you had seven contacts within seven days. Letters, notes, calls, visits at your home. So one night I was visiting with a friend of mine from college. And we had been in the same fraternity together. He went off in the Navy. I went off to seminary. We hadn't met since then, so we came back together when the Navy moved him there. And he was my evangelism partner. So one night we're visiting. And on the way back to church, he said, Dr. Hemphill, he said, do you want to know what it's like to join First Norfolk? And I thought, since he asked me, uh, obviously, no, I don't want to know, but I probably need to know. And so I said, will you tell me? He said it's like being rushed for a fraternity. He said people call you, they you know, contact you out, ask you out to lunch. I mean, we were pretty aggressive about this. We were making those seven contacts. And then he says when you join, the next thing that happens, you get a letter from headquarters saying, welcome to the family. Here's your tithing envelopes. In other words, send your money now. You've enrolled, get your dues paid. And I thought about it, and, and he was right. There were several visits scheduled before a person joined, none after they joined. So you think about your church. Once somebody joins the church, they pretty much have to make their own way into a small group, don't they? And if they're outgoing, they might do it. But if they're not an outgoing personality, they're just not going to walk around back there looking for a class. They're not going to happen. If it's not intentional, it's not going to happen. So we made an enrollment visit to their home, took the curriculum to them, put it in their hand, said, here's where we are. Do you have any questions? Can we pick you up Sunday? Could we meet you somewhere? Because, you know, you get a church of 6,000, it's a lot of floor space in there. And so we didn't assume they could even find it. We'd say, okay, next Sunday we'll meet you at 930 in the parking lot or in the lobby, and we'll take you to class with us. Uh, or better yet, pick them up, take them to class, worship, now to lunch. And you say, that cost me $25. I told you we're too cheap to win people to Jesus. Is it worth $25 to keep somebody out of hell? 
It is to me. So if it's going to take that, every group should have one care leader for every four persons or couples. If you're in a couples class, and you say, why did you come up with this number four? Well, the reason was I was reading a book about administration, and it said that the average administrator cannot administrate more than three or four people. They just kind of lose contact. It just gets overwhelming. You remember the old deacon family ministry plan where you would assign 14, 15 families to a deacon? You know why it never worked? Too many. You, you can't possibly do it. You want to see this pattern in the Bible? Exodus chapter 18. Remember what's happening? Moses is judging people morning to night. He is worn out and he's wearing the people out. Jethro. Who is Jethro? His father-in-law. You know what that means? Moses' wife ain't happy. I'm serious. You, your father-in-law doesn't come talk to the preacher unless his little girl is an unhappy camper. And if, and if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so he says, what you're doing is not good for these people, nor is it good for you. So they organized them in thousands, hundreds, and tens. It's a real simple process. So you can take a church as big as Norfolk, 6,000 members, and in five phone calls, everybody in that church can be contacted. So you call Chairman Deacons, Chairman Deacons class. Now you should say, well, that ain't going to work. We're in a board of deacons. They've been board deacons forever. Do it with somebody else. Start a Barnabas ministry, an encouragers ministry. If, if the deacons aren't going to deacon, start somebody else who does that. Somebody's got to care and nurture for those people. We did it through our deacons. You can do it with care leaders. The care leader ministry must reflect the structure of the small groups. Now you say, what do you mean? Well, as a church grows, you, you generally, we, we kind of have it mentally, but we don't structurally do it. You have young adults, meeting adults, senior adults. So those are essentially departments. Now, we don't meet in departments much anymore because you don't build a space for that, and it's kind of a little bit of a waste of time. But you still structurally need to think that. So let's say you have two young adult classes. The, they would need a deacon over that department and then a deacon over each class so that the structure is the same so that you've got adequate coverage. Let's go on to one more slide, and then we'll take some questions here. So the care leader is responsible for weekly contact. I'm giving you mainly Chapter 6, okay, just to give you an idea. You say, what do the care leaders do? Well, they don't call and say, where were you Sunday? Answer is none of your business. If you'd have been here, we'd have had perfect attendance. You've been out so long, if you come back, I bet the roof falls in. Now, those are not productive calls. The care leader calls to care. So you might call one week and say, I just wanted to let you know we've been planning a fellowship and it's going to happen November the 17th at such and such house. It's just reporting. Say, you know, I know you've not been able to be here in the last couple of weeks. Let me tell you what we've been doing. And, and maybe share about the Bible study and say, we've been doing this. And just to kind of catch you up on that. And I hope you are able to come back when you can. But just, are there any prayer concerns you have? That was the thing. Let me tell you how we started our care ministry. There's nothing in that book, Revitalize Sunday Morning Dinosaur, that I didn't do. Because I didn't ask people to do something I was not willing to do. And so when I got there as pastor, I, I went got my Sunday school teachers together and said, I'm, I'm a Sunday school pastor. 
So I want you to give me anybody you've got on your roll that you've given up on. They're just not going to come. You've tried and tried and tried. And I'm going to start a pastor's class. I'm not competing with you. Don't give me anybody that's coming. And, and I got a couple of guys that weren't in Sunday school, and I said, I want you to join me in this. I need your help. And so I started, I think, with about 38, believe it or not. And that's a good-sized church, obviously, running 380, probably 800 members. I was probably given a list of a couple hundred people they'd given up on. I just called them and said, hey, I'd like to have you do this. And, and a number of them came. One of the guys that was on my list was a guy named Mickey Bean. Mickey was chairman of deacons uh, when the former pastor left. During the interim, a couple of things happened. He kind of got his feelings hurt because he wanted the associate pastor to be the pastor, and the church decided, no, that's not going to happen, so he kind of got his feelings hurt. His mom went in a nursing home. Most people become inactive accidentally. It's not intentional. It's not one thing. It's usually the perfect storm. There's something happening in his family, something at work, and something in the church. So he can't quit work because he likes to eat, so about the only thing he can quit is church, right? So it's multiple issues. <clears throat> so I started calling Mickey. First couple of calls were a little distant because he'd been out for nearly a year now. It's hard to go back to church when you've been out that long, particularly if you were chairman of deacons when you were there. And, and so... Over a, and, and I never called Mickey and said, you know, I did call him and say, I'm a new pastor, and we're starting a pastor's class in the fellowship hall, and, and, and I'd like to encourage you that if you and your wife can come just attend. We're just studying through the book of Genesis, whatever it was. And he said, well, appreciate the offer. I can't be there this week. And so uh, about the third week, I decided this tack's not working. I called Mickey, and I said, hey, Mickey, this is Ken Hemphill. And he said, well, yes, sir. And I said, I, I just call and see how I could pray for you and your family. And it just stopped. The whole conversation stopped. He said, well, Pastor, he said, I haven't been able to be there much because my mom's uh, going to have to go to a nursing home down in North Carolina. He said, wife and I have been going down there almost every weekend. And uh, he said, we're really in a tough decision right now. And I said, what's your mom's name? Now, I taught my care leaders how to do this. And we kind of kept a, a, a contact sheet. It was like a little notebook we made up. So whatever call I made and whatever information I got, I documented it, just wrote it out, just for me. Because you don't want to call back next week to somebody that has shared a concern with you and not remember it, if you're really caring. So next week I called back and I said, Mickey, how's your mom doing? And I called her by name. And, and I said, how can I pray for you and your wife and your mom? So we prayed on the phone. So we started praying together on the phone. A couple of weeks later when I called, I could tell he's waiting. He said, thank you for calling, Pastor. He said, we've got a real tough decision this week. Mom's got to make a decision about this or that. I said, Mickey, I said, you and I have never met yet, but a lot of people in our class know you well and, and remember you fondly. I said, do you mind if I share this prayer concern with them? Now, careful records um, confidentiality never share a prayer concern without permission if you want to destroy your care ministry just start it if you share a prayer concern that is not being given permission to give it's the best Baptist gossip we got 
I, 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 I wouldn't want to gossip about this, but I know you're a prayer warrior, so I was going to tell you. So-and-so's daughter's pregnant. Isn't that a shame? Oh, it's such a, we just got to pray for them. No, you just want to gossip about them. So he said, yeah, Pastor. He said, I'd, I'd appreciate any, any prayer we can get. So I told the class, I said, some of you have seen name Mickey Bean on our roll. I said, he was former chairman of Deacons here. He's been out a while because his mom. I didn't say been out because he got his feelings hurt. His mom's been uh, in a nursing home, and they're having to make some tough decisions. And he wants us to pray for him. Does anybody know Vicky want to lead in prayer for him? So there's several people did. Well, without any intentionality, several of them called him or wrote him a note. Said the pastor was telling us about your mom. How can we help? What can we do? Well, about two weeks later, I called Mickey. It's a whole different tenor. He said, now, Pastor, where's that Sunday school class? I said, well, we're meeting in the fellowship hall. He said, and what time was it? Because we had four Sunday schools. We had one at 7.30. We had, we had four Sunday schools, three worships, because our building was too small. And he said, well, what time is it? And I told him. He said, well, we're coming this way. Mom's doing so much better. And I said, well, Mickey. Uh, and he said, by the way, he said, there were several people in the class called me. He said, I really appreciate that. And I said, well, would you like to tell them thank you? He said, would you, yeah, would you give me time to do that? And I said, sure. So you talk about a homecoming. So he comes into the class, and I said, many of you have been praying for Mickey Bean, and you don't even know who he is. And Mickey's here this Sunday, and, and he just wants to say a word of thank you. So he got up, started crying. We all started crying, talking about his mom, how that class cared for him. And he became one of the instrumental leaders of that class. Been out over a year. But this contact ministry works. And it, it has to be a caring, praying ministry. It's not something to ask people, where are you? Why weren't you here? It's to say, how do we help you? What can we do? Our church is 6,000 members. I don't think I ever made a hospital visit or a death visit that somebody hadn't beat me there as pastor a layman you know how good that is to me in fact there were times I mean I know some of you are going to go oh I can't believe that I didn't visit everybody who went to the hospital you got that many members you, if I had I wouldn't have gotten any preaching done isn't that what was happening in Acts 6 the Hellenistic widows why did they elect deacons in the first place because the church was growing too rapidly and they couldn't neglect prayer and the preaching of the word and so a lot of times around holidays like this, when other staff and people were out of town, I'd say, well, gosh, you know, our family's going to stay here. I'll, I'll take the hospitals. So I'd walk in the hospital room, and somebody would think, oh, my gosh, I must be dying. Preacher's here. He'd given last rites. But nobody in our church felt like they were neglected in ministry because it was organized through these care leaders. Each small group should seek to give birth to a new small group yearly. Um, I don't know if I got any more up there. I, I just wanted to give you a taste of what this thing is about. We got about 10 minutes to 12, and I told you I'd let you out a little early. Any questions on anything I've shared in the teaching section or this caring section? All of that caring section is the last chapter in this organizing your small groups for ongoing care. And uh, it, so you could take it and just use the ideas in it. The best way is to get your members engaged in it. Because one of the chapters, the first one, uh, the second one, engaging each guest with intentionality. A lot of things that, that the larger church does instinctively, a lot of smaller churches don't do because they think, well, everybody knows everybody here. They don't. 
And so it's like marking spaces for visitors to park. It's like having somebody out there to greet them that make people feel welcome. One of the philosophies we had is that every member is a greeter. Now, we had a greeter's team, but the problem is people expect them to do it. So somebody stands at the door and greets you, then you get in the building and everybody ignores you. It doesn't make a good impression. So we kind of get all of those questions. I'll take a couple questions before we go. Is everybody asleep? Everybody just, I, I tell, people tell me, come in one of my conferences, like drinking from a fire hose. It's like I, I would drown if I opened my mouth. So I don't have another question. Thank you guys for coming. Do you have a final word? Uh, thank you for uh, hosting this and church as well. The church did a wonderful job and gave us some extra calories. So that was wonderful as well. And anything we've got over here I can help you with, let me know. Thank you, my brother. My pleasure. Do take some of these if you've got some youth in your church looking for a school. I'd love for them to look at North Greenville.